and welcome to the latest PresCast. I'm Sandra Gidley and I'm President of the RPS, the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. I'm delighted to be joined by two people today. Uh, the first is Gino Martini, our Chief Scientist, who I've spoken to before during the pandemic. And delighted to be joined by Graham Tunbridge from the MHRA. Graham, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, you, what role you have at the MHRA? Of course, um, and thank you so much for, for having me on the podcast. So yeah, my name is Graham Tunbridge and I'm Director of Devices at the MHRA, um, which means that I look after all of the uh, bits of, of the MHRA to do with our regulation of medical devices, including in vitro diagnostic devices. So can you tell me what the MHRA actually does as a medical device regulator? So obviously that includes the diagnostics, as you just mentioned. Yeah, of course. So, so we have a slightly different role um, in relation to medical devices than we do for medicines. For medical devices, our, our real focus is on um, market surveillance and vigilance. So that is identifying when problems occur, investigating those, and taking action to, to support patient safety and, and public health. And um, what we don't do is, is we don't have the equivalent role that the MHRA has on the medicine side. So we don't do market authorization of, of products. That happens through a couple of routes. Um, a lot of products, particularly diagnostics, come onto the market by self-declaration. So the manufacturer declares that they meet the requirements of the, of the legislation and off they go. Uh, and sometimes they're they're certified by a certifying authority called a notified body, and they do the um, they do the market assessment before a product can be placed on the market. So quite a different system then to medicines, which um, maybe some of our listeners won't fully appreciate. There are a couple of broad types of tests: um, the antigen tests and the antibody tests. Can you explain what the difference between those is and when they're used and the general effectiveness of them. Yes, of course. So, so broadly speaking, you've got the, the two different types of tests, are the antigen and the antibody tests. So the antigen tests are looking for the presence of virus, um, and so that will tell you if someone's got an, an active infection. The way that the, the vast majority of antigen tests are done at the moment are through PCR tests. So that's where a swab is taken, it's processed in a lab, the, uh, the nucleic acid is chopped up, and, and the, the test looks for specific sequences that tells you if someone's carrying, carrying the virus or not. That's how the antigen testing works at the moment. There is the possibility that antigen testing could develop in the future to be a bit quicker than that and not have to go through all the processing steps that's involved in PCR. Those tests are still a, a little bit of the way off. The second type of tests are antibody tests, which are looking to see if someone has had an immune response that's generated neutralizing antibodies to, to the virus. So that's something that, that doesn't tell you if you've got active infection, because generally speaking, the generation of sufficient numbers of antibodies comes down the line um, once you're over the acute infection stage. So that those, those are the two different types of tests. Right, so just to clarify, the antigen test is the ones we read about every day, we hear about in the daily briefings to see who has, has the virus. Yep. And the antibody tests are the ones that we're hoping will lead to um, broader understanding of who can safely go back to work. How are they going to be practically used in the future? Well, it's a really good question. A lot of that depends on our understanding of the virus. As it stands, um, no one can say that generating an antibody response, i.e. the fact you've had a COVID infection, you generate antibodies. Um, there's no definitive science that, that tells us yet exactly what that means when it comes to potential for future infection or whether you 
might be able to carry the virus and transmit it in the future or, or anything like that at all. So, so at the moment, the antibody tests are very useful for understanding seroprevalence. So how many people in a particular area have, have had the disease? So you can get a really nice picture of, of, of the disease. That's where they're having utility now. As our understanding of, of the virus develops over time and as, as we get, get to know the science a bit more, there's then the potential for an antibody response to be equated to immunity to mean something when it comes to, you know, potentially am I, am I less at risk in, in various areas. Right now, that's not the case. So a lot of work to be done by the sound of it. Thanks, that's really interesting. I'm going to hand over now to Gino. Thank you, Sandra, uh, and welcome, Graham. Thank you for spending the time talking to us. And I think I just wanted just to talk more about the MHRA role, because I think there's a lot of confusion out there uh, about the role the MHRA does in terms of these tests, and also about Public Health England as well. So, for example, you'll see headlines that these tests have been approved by the MHRA or been approved by Public Health England, for example, and it kind it kind of causes confusion. So, if I understood correctly from your um, your answer to the question, the MHRA does it approve tests per se or or not? I need to understand the different systems, and I think that would help our, our listeners and our members to understand more about what's approvable, what is not approved. If that makes of sense. Of course. It makes complete sense, yeah. The majority of diagnostic tests, as it stands, don't go through any kind of approval before they can be placed on the market. So you'll see uh, you'll see tests that, that have a C mark on them, and that C mark is a direct declaration by the manufacturer that they are saying, yes, we've met, we've met all the requirements of the legislation, and that will set out some pretty basic performance parameters and characteristics. So the manufacturer will have done tests against X number of samples and got these got these results. Um, it's only under the current uh, regulations that are in place it's only higher risk tests so when you're doing blood typing when you're looking for the presence of highly infectious agents like um, HIV for example that actually require some sort of pre-market approval on a side note, the, the, the regulatory framework is, is undergoing change at, at an EU level. Clearly, we are leaving the EU at the end of the year, and, and what the future for that means is, is very different, but things are changing. So, so in the future, that there are going to be differences, and it is likely that more tests will go through some sort of approval. But as it stands, um, where you see the CE mark on a test, generally speaking, that, that is just a de declaration by the manufacturer that, that it's safe and, and, and performs as, as they state. Now, the, the, way, the way that I tend to describe it is, like when a, when a car maker produces a car and says, here's our, here's our miles per gallon figures that you can get doing X, Y, and Z. And they will have tested that in perfect conditions with uh, nothing on board, you know, uh, and, and, and all that sort of thing. Actually, when, when you put the car into use in, in the real world, you end up getting quite different results. And it, it, it's the same sort of situation when it comes to the, the kind of tests that we're seeing and the performance claims that manufacturers put to them. That's why, for example, there is a desire to do more when it comes to, okay, so manufacturer, you're saying that you're getting these performance parameters, we want to put that through some sort of independent validation, and that's the sort of thing that PHE has been doing. Okay, so what you're saying, so MHRA kind of provides a regulatory scrutiny of sorts based upon the fact that the tests are kind of self-certified by the manufacturer, but Public Health England's role is to try and evaluate the tests to try and see whether, use your, your analogy, the miles per gallon, so to speak, what the real 
Mars McGowan is. PHE don't do this more generally. They're taking a very COVID-specific interest in this. I think, you know, antibody testing is, is quite a good example because you can get a quite different result by looking at different antibodies. So we know from the immune response that you get IgM antibodies, one type of antibodies quite early on, and they, they peak and then fall away quickly. And then you get IgG antibodies that, that, that are the ones that persist and you have more of a period of time. Equally, we know that you get different peaks at different stages of infection. So seven days, 14 days, 21, 40 days post-infection, you get different rates. So, so what you need to say is, well, what do we want this test to do? And you then test, then you then have to subject the test and say, does it do what we need to? Because the manufacturer won't necessarily have done everything that you want it to, because you can get quite different answers at looking at someone seven days post-infection, someone 40 days post-infection, and you probably want quite a different test. But that, that's not immediately apparent from what you might see that all the performance claims that, that come from the manufacturer. Okay, so we've uh, busted some myths there. Well, the, the, the key one that I've seen is that PHE actually approve tests. They don't. They just evaluate tests, correct? Indeed. Uh, and, and PHE are thinking about it in a couple of terms. That They're thinking out in the sense of it's helpful for people to know these parameters, but also they're interested because PHE have got a very specific role in doing some of the seroprevalence studies. So they said it's really important that we know the performance characteristics so that when we're going out and using these tests, we can account for how they perform to, to make sure that we're making corrections so that they're actually getting accurate samples of data. So the next uh, question is one that I think a lot of listeners are thinking about. There have been many claims, Graham, about accuracy, sensitivity, and specificity. Can you give, explain more, more details what these mean and, and why they kind of vary all the time? Sensitivity and specificity are the, are the two things that, that manufacturers tend to talk about. They do what they say they do. So, so sensitivity is, is how sensitive is the test at picking up the, the particular virus that it's looking for. So essentially, when it's measured as a percentage, it's the proportion of people with antibodies that return a positive test. So how good is it at, at picking up that you've made antibodies to, to COVID? 100% being the best there. Every single time that, that you subject tests to, to a sample with antibodies, it picks them up. So that, that's the sensitivity. So the specificity is how specific is the test to the virus that you're looking for. So does it, when you're putting a sample through it, does it pick up other viruses and return um, false positive tests, i.e., you know, we know that there are other coronaviruses around. Does it actually pick up them and say, yes, you've, you've had uh, COVID there? So that's what sensitivity and specificity do. You're looking for 100% in both because that means it only picks up COVID and doesn't return any false positive samples. Clearly, it's a challenge to get there because the technology takes a while. It takes a while to actually properly um, properly characterize the virus and understand what is the best way of building a test that allows you to properly find the positives and, and not pick up those false positives. I'm curious here if you can explain to a, a relative layperson um, in this. So 100% is obviously aimed for. Are we at 100% with any of the current tests? Is that why they're not moving forward? And are, um, are you able to say what sort of rate of specificity we've reached at the moment? It really depends on what samples you use and when you're using samples with, with high levels of antibodies that in an ideal situation with all the parameters exactly how you want them. So in the perfect situation, quite a few of the tests, particularly the lab-based tests, are, you know, they're returning good results. The, the trouble is that, that, you know, we introduce lots of variables and parameters, um, several of which uh, involve, you know, human error both from the human taking the sample through to the human running the test and all that kind of thing. And just all those things that they bring in 
um, confounding factors that mean that once you move outside of that ideal situation, the parameters start to get a little bit lower. Thankfully, generally speaking, what we're seeing is, is we're seeing that have a knock-on effect on sensitivity and not specificity. So, so what we're not tending to see is people being told that they uh, have had COVID when they haven't, because that, that clearly would be, would be a bit of a problem. Okay, so that, that's really interesting, Graham, to discuss. And I think that, that kind of answers a lot of questions people have because they, they see these great figures of 100% and, and they have been quoted. And then actually when a fair analysis is done in the real world, those, those figures are, are, are a bit lower. I would also imagine the response to the individual, the patient to the, the virus, that clearly is different. Some people obviously don't show symptoms and some are showing some really drastic symptoms. Is that having an effect as well? Indeed, and there is still, um, we have to uh, recognise the fact that we're six months into knowing very much at all about this virus, so it's still incredibly early days. You know, there is there is so much more to learn, and one of the, one of the key things is exactly what you said. It, it's how are different people reacting? Why are some people affected so badly? You know, some people might not be producing neutralizing antibodies at all, and other aspects of their immune system are fighting off. There is so much still to learn that we are in that phase. So the thing that I that I like to emphasize is, is you know we have to tread carefully here, and particularly when it comes to antibody tests. Thing. Like I said, it has its place, but we, we can't overemphasize what a positive result means for anyone just yet. This is a question that is probably very difficult to answer, but have you any idea from dealing with other tests and viruses how long it's likely to take before we get the usefulness and the utility we, we want? From the tests, I, I'm pretty confident that in the coming months we're, we're going to be seeing tests that will have utility on, on an individual patient basis to, to, to support them. It does depend on knowing more about the virus. Already the tests that, that we've got, they're, they're proving to be extremely useful when it comes to the seroprevalence, the understanding the prevalence of the disease in the population and the ability to track changes over time because that's key when it comes to the government's broader response and supporting us to be able to take action that's going to keep the, the transmission rate down and, and really keep a lid on things. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. The profession as a whole has been looking at how the new normal post-COVID, whatever you want to call it, is going to look. And some have been uh, suggesting that pharmacists could conduct antibody testing in a pharmacy. Do you think that is feasible in any shape or form? Is there a, a need or a benefit to that? Very potentially, yes. I mean, what is clear is, is that if we want to stay out of situations where we have to go back into lockdowns, um, then very quick um, identification of the disease and action taken off the back of that is, is absolutely key to, to, to supporting us to do that. So I think any healthcare professional that, that can play a role and, you know, pharmacists are, are in an excellent position to do that. The question is getting the kit that's going to support that to happen at a point of care. So as I said, there are the PCR tests, there are desktop bits of PCR kit that can run tests in, in an hour, hour and a half. That's the sort of thing that you could see ending up in pharmacies. It's expensive kit at the moment that, that you know, it's, it's not that widely available. But, you know, the government is looking very, very hard at all options. Equally, you know, over time, the kinds of, the, you know, the finger stick testing is, is going to become more accessible. The lateral flow tests, so, so the, you know, the, the, what we call the pregnancy style tests, the development of those is happening rapidly as well. We're already into second, third generations where people are starting to develop these. It's hard that they'll ever work as well as a lab, but, you know, you can see these working well. What I think the experience that the MHRA has is is when we look at putting tests into the hands of 
lay users is that you do have to do some very specific usability studies to make sure that those tests can be used properly. And we know that people manage to mess things up in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways. So the, the, the more that you can take out the, the ability of someone to perform the testing correctly, then the better results you're going to get. So there's absolutely a, a role there for pharmacists, you know, supporting people to, to do these things properly. I think given the um, other pressures uh, in the pharmacy world that if this is slick and simple then that is likely to be something that they would embrace whereas as you say if there are lots of areas for error it's, it's not just the MHRA who might be worried the pharmacists would be less likely to take it up as well so let's watch this space. Indeed. Um, Could I ask just a question actually you, we talk about finger prick testing and venous blood testing uh, Graeme so I mean, this is this is quite important because venous blood is, you know, you take a blood draw from your arm, and fingerprint testing clearly is from your, you know, is from your finger. The differences in, in sensitivity and accuracy is that is that right? And that's the reason that's the, moving from a lab based to a pharmacy-based point-of-care testing, there's, there's challenges still there? Is, is, that, is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, so the the, the, the lab tests that we see for antibody testing, they, they, currently the ones that we see, uh, they're validated against blood that you draw from the vein. The main reason for that is is, is volume-wise, so it just needs a fairly decent volume of blood. It is it is quite difficult to get a decent volume of blood out of a fingerprint test. I spoke to someone that, that ordered one of the uh, the fingerprint tests, and they got it through the post, and it came with four lancets with it, and they, they wondered why on earth it had that until they realized the amount of blood that they had to generate and they said that by the end of it it looked like they'd been butchering someone because their fingers were dripping with blood and they managed to get you know they managed to fill up the tube but by the time they'd finished it it was starting to coagulate and they sent it off but it was sent back because the sample wasn't obviously wasn't suitable for, for running through so it, it's just when you when you're starting to use different blood types then you need to think about the, the complete end-to-end -end. and ideally you build it up from a system that only requires a small amount of blood in in the lab, which then means that, that you only need to generate a small amount of blood, which can be reliably done through finger prick. The minute you start needing more, it starts to become difficult. And again, you introduce all those factors that I spoke about, about just, just getting things a bit wrong. Yes, you're taking me back to my student days and those practicals where we had to stab ourselves with lancets to draw blood and uh, we have more sophisticated ways of getting blood out of people now. But but interesting to see that um, potentially this is something where we could play a role. Thank you both for joining me today. I found it very educational and interesting. Graham, good luck with your work at the MHRA and uh, hopefully we'll have a more usable and useful tests but as you say we're learning about this virus all the time and thank you Gino for setting this up and joining me today thank so you. goodbye from all of us thanks goodbye